Hello again, this is Josh Carr with The Real Angle uh, back again. And today I'm speaking with Ron Diamond. Ron, how are you doing today? I'm doing terrific. Thank you for having me. Thank you for coming. Uh, so first thing I always like to get out of the way, because it's always the first thing people do on the computer is, uh, what's the name of your company and what's your web address? Uh, name of the company is Diamond Wealth. And the um, web address is um, diamondwealthstrategies.com. Excellent. Always like to get that out of the way because, you know, it's just a good thing to do. So um, so let's start with the basics. Uh, what what does Diamond Wealth do and what, what do you do there? We invest alongside about 100 family offices, and these are families ranging anywhere between 250 million to 30 billion. And I kind of act as a funnel and we invest in the private market. So that would be private equity, venture capital, real estate and credit. And basically, of the families, I know who kind of who likes what. So if it's a multifamily deal or if it's a if it's a industrial deal, there's 20 families or 40 families that I'll go to. So basically, it's a way for me to and I invest in every deal as well. So that's basically what we do. Got it. So you're sourcing the transactions and then helping them place capital. Right. Um, out of curiosity, uh, just and this is just curiosity. When you do a deal, are you generally working with one family office per deal? Or are you bringing three of them together? So, yeah, it's a good question. So, no, what, what we do is, you know, we work with about 100. So let's say it's a multifamily real estate. There's like 60 families in of the 100 that I work with that like that asset class. Whereas if okay. it's self-storage, it might be 28. So let's just say it's self-storage. I'll go to the 28 that like that. And if they want to come in, great. And if they don't, that's fine, too. We don't, but I'm not charging anything. Um, but I'm not doing it for self-list purpose. I do it self-ishly because... I'll put in a couple million bucks per deal, but that makes me the smallest guy on the cap table. I don't have enough capital to put in 50 to $100 million to every deal. Now I do. So I call it first call alpha. Got it. So you're you're co-investing along with them, but you're not like, you're not a typical GPLP where you're like, I get a no, breath and a split. No, it's, it's a way for me to access a finite amount of capital um, and, and act as if we've got much more because we do. And we're typically... We're pretty good. Um, we've been able to put together $150 million in, in a couple of weeks. Um, we're also pretty good about, you know, saying no pretty quickly. So right. um, I think that the people we work with uh, appreciate that because, um, you know, if it's, it might be a great deal, it just might not be a good fit for us. So we're very good about saying no quickly. And right. if we have to scramble to pull the money together, we've, uh, we've done it. No, I and I, I appreciate that. I'm an, I'm an operator, and I'd much rather be just have a a polite no than dragging me along for two weeks where I think we're going to do a deal, and you apparently don't want to hurt my feelings. It's like, look, it's not emotional. Just if you don't want to buy an apartment building in New Jersey, just say so, and let's move on with our day. Yeah, no, that that's that's good. So you know, you hear the term club deal thrown around. Would you describe this as a a club deal then, so to speak, the way you're sort of. Kind of, but, um, you know, the, the difference is we don't, we're not charging anything. So, right. um, so it's not really a club deal in, in that sense. Uh, it, again, it's a way for me, I, I used to run a hedge fund and my, I started my career at Drexel Burnham. And one of the early things I learned is if there's a really attractive office market deal, typically you're going to bring it to your best or wealthiest client. Mm -hmm. um, I, I remember when I was at Drexel Burnham, um, you know, if Google would go public, they give you allocate maybe a hundred or 500 or a thousand shares. And who are you going to give it to your wealthiest or two wealthiest clients? That's what you sure. do. 
best relationship. I wanted to be that first call, but I don't have enough capital to be that first call. Now I do. So Got that's it. why I call it first call alpha. No, and, and that's a good way of describing it. Look, I mean, that it's uh, what you're describing is actually seeing the big picture, which is something that a lot of people don't do, frankly. So not to blow smoke, but I mean, that makes a lot of sense. Out of curiosity, just because you mentioned you worked at Drexel, um, I used to have offices in the city at 55 Broad. Were you at 55 Broad? Uh, we were at C. I think we were 60 Broad. That's where it was. 60 Broad. Yeah, we were no, 60. That, yeah, the, the old Drexel yeah. Burnham building. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was, I, I was in the room when, when I was 24, but I was in the room when Fred Joseph announced we're going bankrupt, and I'm literally sitting around <laughs> a bunch of people in their 50s and 60s, and many of these people were literally openly weeping. Um, sure. And in, in my takeaway from that was, and it was very pivotal for me, because I, I could still remember who was in the room, what they looked like, what they were wearing, even some some smells and scents. No, it's like a trauma. Yeah, sure, sure. It was, I just lost a good job. I don't have many stock options. But what was interesting is my takeaway from that was I would always be loyal to people, always, but right. never to a company. Because if this can happen to Drexel, this can happen to Goldman. And then if you sure. look at down the list, it can happen to Bear Stearns. It can happen to Lehman Brothers. It can happen to DLJ. So that was a takeaway for me. And that's what caused me to halt from working from Drexel and start my own company, which was a hedge fund. No, I have a buddy of mine who was at Lehman. And when Lehman blew up, he kidded around that the only thing he got as a takeaway was a bunch of free stationery, uh, you know, stack, stacks of notepads, stacks of pens. That was his, that was his close, his, uh, you know, his exit, his exit bonus, if you will, was pens. So yeah, 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 yeah I hear you. But I the interesting you. thing that we do, it's a very tight community, ex-Drexel. So we still keep to, we still keep in touch. I still keep in touch with Milken and I sure. go to the conferences and it's a core group of people that really still keep in touch together. It's, it's a really amazing group. Excellent. Well, that's fun. I just figured I'd ask. Cool, 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 cool. So so let's talk a little bit about investments. I mean, you're bringing money together and that's great, but I assume there's certain product types that you personally find interesting because you're putting money to work. What what's what's ringing your bell, so to speak? And what are the things that you're running away from and have no interest in in today's market? Well, I, I think we're in a in a really interesting period. And again, look, you have to understand, I look at things through the lens of a family office uh, rather than a real estate private equity firm who's going to deploy money. And the difference is that we have patient capital and we look at things 10, 20, 30 years rather than every three to five years in flipping it. So mm -hmm. I look at things from a different through a different lens than than a lot of people. Um, I look at major trends, you know, one thing we're staying away from, which I certainly don't have my finger on the pulse of is, is office. Um, I don't know how that's going to play out. I mean, personally, I think it's crazy not to be working in an office, particularly for these young kids, um, because if you're 25 or 30 years old, you do need a mentor. Um, you do need a role model. Sure. Everybody has them, but these kids don't want to do it. So my friend who's one of the top guys in, in real estate as a tenant rep says the world's changed and it's going to be three to four days a week is what it's going to be. And it's going to be hybrid. Well, so and we it's funny you mentioned the mentor thing. You know, a lot of times you don't even realize that they were your mentors until you look back, you know, like, yeah, that guy took me under my wing. I didn't understand it because it was 25. So why would I understand what that even means? Uh, plus on a personal level, like thinking about my twenties, that was my social life. Like, you know, I mean, that's who I hung out with and went for drinks with. So I'm just going to sit in my house all day. Like that just, I don't I, I think there's going to be a backlash of my opinion. Um, I'm not basing this on any data, but, no, but we're, we're not wired to be sitting in our, in a home 
individual without without other human beings. We're wired as as a species to be together. And I just think it's very unnatural. Now, for me or you, it's fine. You know, we're a little more established and we've been around for a while. But if I was 25 years old and I was doing this, I would be missing out on a ton and I wouldn't understand what I'm missing out on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, you need you need you need to you need the socialization. No, and that's a fair point. I mean, you know, what you're talking about now is sort of thinking about real estate as a broad as broader macroeconomic, cultural, social, political trends, rather than just simply I'm going to buy this building and create some value and flip it and make a buck. You know, um, which is sort of gets to your point about family offices, their time horizons, which are basically generational. I mean, they're thinking about family, which is a very different mindset than than PE. Um, so let's talk a little bit about what a family office even means, because I mean, a buddy of mine said to me once years ago that like, you know, if you've met one family office, you've met one family office, like they're right. all different. So um, when you when I say family office, what do you hear? What do you think of? What's your experiences with these groups? I gave a keynote at Stanford about five years ago, and I had five billion dollar families that I was talking talking with and sure. and I said to each one of them what is a family office and why did you create yours okay. and I had five completely different answers there's no and nobody was wrong and nobody was right that's just kind of where we are um it's it's a term that's thrown around so often I'll give you a little back backdrop of so to understand it but you know family offices you can go back to the Medici's over a thousand years is when they really started but in the U.S. it really started in the late 18, 1880s with Rockefeller and Vanderbilt but the way that we hear the word term family office, it really started around 2000. So 68% of family offices that exist today started since 2000, and half of those started since the crash. So this is a very new phenomenon. Having said that, the model doesn't work. Only 25% of family offices make it to the second generation, 10 make it to the third, and five make it to the fourth. It's wow. a very inefficient, it's a very fragmented, and it's a very siloed market. Huh. So why is everybody so bullish on this? Uh, the reason is there's currently $10 trillion in capital in family offices. And just to kind of compare that, there's roughly $6.5 globally in the entire hedge fund universe throughout the whole world, right? Mm -hmm. Family office of $10 trillion. But even more important than that, we're about to experience the largest transfer of wealth in history. There is $84.4 trillion that's being moved from the baby boomers to the next gen in the next 20 years. So this is the largest transfer of wealth in history. So this family office market, which is fragmented, siloed, and inefficient, is going to get bigger and bigger. And what I see happening is the, the, the families that have, that have the infrastructure, that get it and run it like a business, which is maybe 10% of it, right. they have a better model than the private equity or venture capital or real estate private equity firm because they have patient capital. They don't have to flip companies every three to five years or flip a uh, building every three to five years. Um, the problem is right now it's the minority. I think how it's gonna play out is over the next five to 10 years, um, you're gonna see more and more families become more sophisticated, less siloed, less fragmented and work together. And right now, like I said, and I speak all over the world about this, we're only in the second or third inning in the evolution of family offices. This is going to fundamentally change as private equity and venture capital disrupted the public markets in the mid 80s. Family offices are going to disrupt private equity and venture capital. It's just too early right now. Right. And so when you talk about, you know, the fact that they fail to often go from one generation to another and a lack of sophistication and running it like a business, 
that gets back to setting up the infrastructure. It's basically the the social infrastructure, if you will, that it actually runs like a business, and it's just not like it's me and my cousin. So you have uh, you somebody has a liquidity event, and they sell the company half a billion dollars. What's sure. the first thing they do typically? They find really attractive deals in real estate or private equity or venture capital. Yeah, the What's the first thing they should do before they make one investment? They should talk to an estate planning attorney because that's sort of like the foundation of a house. And a lot of the reasons that, the, that these families don't make it past generations, they're not focused on the structure and the governance. Mm -hmm. And the that's the important part of it because without that, everything else falls apart. <laughs> and the other thing is, um, you know, working with an estate planning attorney when you have that kind of capital, you can really create what I call tax alpha. Um, the your family, your 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 estate planning attorney that the family office is working with is more important than any money manager that they're working with because right. they look at things through the lens of generational and tax efficiency, et cetera. So the problem is that they have a liquidity event. Um, I'll give you know a perfect example, and I always pick on them, but you know, you, Taiwan, you know, you sell Beanie Babies. Right. I wonder right. was, was a visionary. I, I could not do what he did, but it doesn't mean he knows how to buy hotels. And we saw that, right? So, you know, that's just a microcosm of the industry. So you've got huge amounts of capital and very inefficient hands. Interesting. Interesting. No, it's, it's, it's fun to talk about this because I mean, I definitely, I've seen, I've interacted with some family offices that run in a professional manner and others, not so much, you know, and uh, where it seems more like it's just like a, place to hang your awards but, on but most of and, and i would argue most most of them are not i would say 85 to 90 percent of family offices that exist should not exist the way they're structured today in my right. opinion and again i make no judgment that no it makes sense i mean you could just give your money to professional money managers and just not be running it i mean you know the, guys the biggest and the biggest advantage they have is their patient capital but in order to do that in order to invest patiently they need to have an infrastructure and most right. people don't have, most family offices don't have the infrastructure set up. So you look at like one extreme is the Pritzker. So I'm friends with Paul Carbone, who runs the family office for Tony and JB Pritzker. They've institutionalized this. They've got a team of 50 people in every deal they look at. And um, they can compete directly with Carlisle and Blackstone. And it's actually a better model because they're not constrained to a three or five year time frame. They've got right. to pay the capital. They can do three to five, but they can also do 10. Uh, they're flexible. They're, they, they're flexible. Do, they do what makes the most sense. Right. for the investment, not necessarily for the GPs. And that's a fundamental difference. And I think that the family office strategy in general, it, it's much, the interests are much more aligned. Um, yeah, no, I, and I hear you. I've, I've got an old buddy of mine from grad school who runs a very successful hotel business, family business that he's like third generation. And I asked him once, you know, had they ever considered launching a fund? And he said to me uh, in a loving but snarky way, so what you're telling me is once I've created all of this value, I should sell it, take the tax hit, distribute all the money, and then raise all the money all over again from the same people, you know? And and I thought that was a good way of putting it, you know? If you well, and, and if performs. you think about it, what happens is, and, and I just did a, a podcast on this fairly recently, if you think about it, these private equity firms, they'll buy, a private equity firm will buy a company from a family, and they'll hold it for three to four years, and they'll yep. sell it because that's how the the GPs are compensated. That's the timing, yep. And they'll hold it for four to five years and sell it to another private equity firm. So over a 20-year period, you could see this one company change hands four to five times. And if you compare that to a family office that's going to buy it, hold it, not have the friction, not have the transaction costs, not have the taxes, it's an yep. exponentially better model. Yep. 
No, because you and also, you know, you 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 have a team of people at that company. I mean, people, employees want legit longevity. They want stability. They want it's it's all the reasons you want to build a business. And the so, other thing, I would, the other thing I would add also is that family offices typically are operators. I think it's very hard to create alpha. I could financially engineer any company, um, but that's myopic. I think to really create alpha, you need to operate. You you can't do it by financial engineering. And if you look at a lot of these big firms. A lot of these guys are finance guys, and there's nothing wrong with finance guys. It's just that to create alpha, you need to operate. No, I, I, um, you know, I, I've, I, I, that you're, you're speaking my language. I mean, I, you know, I come from the real estate side of the world, and you know, it's, it's something you have to physically drive to and see and interact with other human beings and talk to people uh, rather than just muck around on Excel. So yeah, no, I, I get you. I get you. So one question I always like to ask, because surprises are always fun. Um, and secret sauce is always an interesting thing. So, I mean, you look at a lot of deals. Uh, you have competitors who also look at a lot of deals. What are the deals that you're seeing out there and the investments out there that work for you? I mean, we've talked about the timeline issue, which I think is substantial. But, like, what makes an investment for you personally make sense that may not make sense for other people? I guess is the best way of putting it. Well, I think we're at an, incre we're at an incredible period for investment for family offices who have patient capital because – I think that as rates, you know, what happened was post-crash, pre-COVID, I don't care what asset class you invested in, real estate including, it went up. Private equity, venture capital, real estate, credit, sure. Bitcoin, the stock market, everything went up. Everything. And with, when interest rates are zero, it's easy to look smart. So what happened was a lot of these family offices started to do direct deals. They're like, why do I need a guy like you, J Joshua? Because I have to pay you 220 I could do it myself and pay no fees. Just and that worked sure. until it didn't. And as interest rates came up, so I think the opportunity is going to be huge. We're sitting on a tremendous amount of dry powder. I think over the next six to 18 months, you're going to see a huge amount of, of family offices who did these direct deals or who did invest in real estate. They're not going to be able to refinance, refinance these deals. And you're going to be able to get these rock bottom prices, the family offices. So right now, I think that the family office, the arbitrage is taking advantage for the family offices of other family offices who got into real estate without experts like you felt they could do it themselves and now are underwater. And I think right. that, so I think you're going to see some big opportunities in multifamily. I think you're going to see big opportunities in, in, in several of the different uh, asset classes in real estate. Yeah. You know what it, what it feels similar to is, um, you know, there are a lot of high yield lenders, bridge lenders out there and the bridge lending business makes a lot of sense until you actually have to foreclose and take back the asset. And where I've seen bridge lenders get into trouble is you get four finance guys in a room, and then when one deal goes bad, they all go bad because they all tend to go bad at the same time. And then you got four finance guys looking at each other saying, okay, how do I actually build a hotel? You know, like I don't, I'm, I'm a finance guy. I, I'm not a contractor. Like, how do I do this? Um, and it's the same sort of thing. A lot of these people are going to find assets that are messed up in a core way, and that doesn't mean they know how to reposition them because. But having, you know, having said that, I do think it's. I do think it's a great opportunity for people who are looking to raise capital from family offices to to do that because yep. in the family office we we as an industry have a tremendous amount of dry powder and if you know if you can get in bed with one or two family offices and add value typically a family office wants to introduce you to other families it's kind of a very closed network but if you're adding value and the 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 thing that people don't understand when they're working with family offices and I try to explain this to them which is different than working with the institutional firms. If you're work, if you're working for a pension, if you're trying to raise money from a pension fund, okay, you've got you do you're very successful in apartments in New Jersey. 
-hmm. What they're going to ask you is, what's your one, three, five, ten year track record? What's your biggest drawdown? Tell me the the data, and then so they're going to find out line, are you a good right. person or not. Sure. That's flipped from family office. The first, second, third thing they want to know is, are you a good person? Can I trust you? Yeah. And then they'll do, find out your track record. So it's it. This is a completely different. It's a relationship business. So right. I, I think that's something that people really need to get their hands on. And they talk about how, I mean, it's obviously better if you've got better returns. Sure. But family offices, you know, there's a lot of really smart people in the world, right? But integrity, you know, I, I, I think that um, intelligence is a commodity, integrity is not. And I think that's what families are looking for. No, I, I, I think that's an excellent point. I mean, yeah, I mean, if I'm talking to someone at a large financial institution, I'm not speaking with Mr. Goldman Sachs. I'm speaking with an employee who works for Goldman Sachs, and obviously he wants to get compensated too, but I don't have a relationship with Goldman. I have a relationship with him who actually works at Goldman. If I'm dealing with a family office, the name on the door is the same as the man I'm dealing with. It's a very different kind of relationship. Right, and, they, and they, they, make, they do make, in general, they do make better partners. Now, today, sure. we're still very early in the family office. Again, it's still very inefficient and fragmented and siloed, but that's going to change. So we're in the process of creating a family office initiative at one of the top universities in the world, uh, which will be announced in the next 90 days. And the whole point of this is that right now, these bright kids who come out of the good schools and they want to make a lot of money, they go into real estate or private equity or venture capital or hedge fund. Nobody goes into family offices. They don't even know what a family office is. It sounds very staid and boring and conservative. That's what people Co think. Correct. Of. But my belief is that in five years, the top kids coming out of these top schools their first choice is going to go to a family office. Interesting. Interesting. Well, when you launch whatever that initiative is, I'd love to know about it just because, um, I mean, I, I agree. So it's, it's, uh, it's not, I mean, I, I've been trying to get more family office people on here. Um, to be honest, you know, the biggest challenge I've had, not that it's been a huge challenge, but the challenge is because, as you're saying, family offices tend to be relatively a closed ecosystem. And so the way you get more family office people is from the family office guy you just talk to. You know, it, it's not it's not as open as, say, you know, PE folk. But but it's incumbent upon us as the family offices to open up to say what we're looking for, because otherwise, how are the smart guys going to find the rich guys and how are the rich guys going to find the smart guys? So if I've got a family office and I want to be closed, I can do whatever I want. But if, and let's say I'd like to invest in industrial real estate. Well, if people don't know that, they're not going to show me these industrial real estate deals. Right. Yeah. Like yeah. Invest in. There has to be some communication. You can't just sit on a pile of money. So a lot of it's on us. Stare at it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's, it's fair enough. Um, so... One question I always like to ask, um, recent deal you worked on, uh, just to get the color of things. I and mean, we've talked a lot theory, which is great, um, but just to talk some specifics. So, you know, unexpected surprises on a recent transaction. I mean, you guys, what's, uh, I'm going to ask two questions. One is, what are you looking for in an operator, but also, and then I'll sort of morph into a specific deal. So with operators, you're looking for people you can build a relationship with. You're looking for integrity. Um, I don't know. How are you even judging that? Like, how do you, how do you, like quantifying a pipeline is a pipeline. How, how do you quantify integrity? Like, how do you deal with the intangibles? I guess is a good way of putting it. That's a great question. question. That's a great question. And I wish I could bottle the answer and I wish I had a silver bullet. Um, but I think it, it, it comes down, you know, when I was younger, um, all I wanted to do was to work with the smartest people in the world, right? The, the smartest people that I know. Sure. My dad was a banker 
and he used to tell me that uh, he was brilliant and he was very successful. And he said, when he'd have a meeting with 10 to 12 people, you could always tell who the lawyer was because the lawyer, in, in general, the lawyer would typically come in and try to show that they're the smartest guy in the room. Sure, sure, sure. The entrepreneur would come in and his goal was to find the smartest guy in the room. So I look at what I do is that, right? right? I would rather in most situations, as my brothers like to tell me, I am the dumbest and the poorest person that I'm working with. <laughs> but, I'm fine, yeah. but I'm fine with that. Yeah. You want to be around people that are smarter than you. And I think the biggest obstacle for success for a lot of these family offices is the ego of the matriarch or patriarch because they did it one way doesn't mean you're good at something else. Yeah, you know, it's funny. And firms, you know, that that comes back to also firm culture, you know, like some firms, um, like I've done some work with Jones Lang LaSalle over the years, and I love the JLL guys. Right, I remember firm. speaking with someone, a senior guy over JLL, um, this is Chicago office, I'm talking about sort of like, uh, we're talking about, I was doing some teaching. So I was talking about like, where are you recruiting your analysts and associates from, et cetera, et cetera. And we got into a conversation about the philosophy of recruiting. And the way he put it to me is basically, I'd rather hire uh, the B student who was a pleasant person to work with than the A student who was, you know, he used an obscenity to describe the kind of A student. And I always thought there was a very different philosophy than a lot of the private equity shops. I've done work at a number of PE shops and, you know, a lot of PE shops, they want that A guy regardless of whether or not he's an absolute prick. And, you know, that's a philosophy, I guess. I mean, that's just management. Well, many of them, many of them have succeeded. Yeah. No, I mean, you know, again, you can make money either way. I think it's a question of how you want to do it. Um, yeah. So. It's interesting. It's interesting. So, you know, the economy is in an interesting place. Interest rates have been bouncing all over the place. You know, I understand that to a certain extent, family offices are, you know, isolated from this because they take a very long time horizon. At the same time, you know, treasuries have spiked. I mean, they, they can't be totally siloed. What are you seeing for them as far as their appetite or interest in real estate right now? Because obviously that's my focus. For family offices? Yeah, for family offices. Yeah, I mean, rough, rough, so real estate is the largest asset class for family offices. Roughly 25% of the assets that family offices invest in is in real estate. What That could be multifamily, it could be industrial, it could be student house, it could be any different form. So that is the biggest asset class, followed second by private equity. Okay. Um, so there's a huge appetite. I think in general, you're kind of seeing a lot of people sit on the, on the sideline. I do think you're going to see some once in a generation opportunities over the next six to 18 months, because I do think a lot of these real, a lot of these people are just going to be caught. They're going to have to give the you know banks that want to own the property. They're going to have to give it back. And I think you're going to see a lot of bad, but from that, I think you're going to see tremendous opportunity because you had a whole bunch of people who got in way over their skis and the family oh, yeah. right now have the patient capital. So let me ask this question, because this is a debate I've been having of a colleague of mine. When does the ice thaw? Like, if you had to guess, is it 24? Is it 25? When do you think the ice thaws and this money comes in from the sidelines? So I'm not smart enough to, to give you a, a date. On, I realize on, that. I realize on when that. that comes. But I, I, I can tell you it, it, it's 100% going to happen, whether it's six months, 12 months, 24 four months sort of like in that time frame it right. it can't not happen based on people who have to refi right so it will 100 percent happen so in that period so let's say six to 24 months i think you're going to see some incredible opportunities to come in and buy real estate at ridiculously 
cheap prices. And that's what the family office are going to be able to do. So, and I, excellent point. So just one or two more questions, just out of curiosity. So for your firm, um, your strategy, if you will, like, what are your plans? Like, where do you want to grow your business in the next year, three years, five years? Like, I mean, I understand you're deploying all this money for these people, but like, where do you want, what do you want to be working on? Well, it's not, so it's not really a business per se, because basically what I, I used to run a hedge fund and I sold it and I had a liquidity event. And then basically, so all I'm doing is taking the finite amount of capital I have, aggregating it and acting like as if I have more capital, which I do because other people invest in. So it's not like a business per se. So basically it's a way for me to invest my personal capital and, and, and increase that. We don't charge fees or anything right. like that. So what I believe is I think that, um, I try, like I said, I try to surround myself with really smart people that I trust implicitly. And when you do that, almost always good things happen. It's very easy in 2014, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, when everything goes up for everybody to slap yeah. you on the back and talk about, but when things go bad, that's when you really need to know how are your partners. And that's when you find out people's character. And, you know, I, I just want to make sure, and I've done a, I've done a very good job of surrounding myself around people. They are smart, but they're all, I trust them implicitly. Uh, you know, it's funny. I, I've taught at Columbia for like 15, 20 years. And every year there's like two or three students that I make a point of that I want to keep tabs on them. And because they're smart, they've got, they're, they're the package. They're good people. They've got, they've got good people, got access. They're capable, the whole nine yards. And um, they always end up in good places. It's fascinating where they end up. It's absolutely fascinating. Rarely where I thought they would be, but Always very glad I stayed on top of it. It's so not, it's, not, you, you can be extremely successful and be a good person. They're not mutually exclusive. Yeah, I know. I know. I know. Yeah. Not, not every, uh, yeah, it's, it's uh, unfortunately, I think uh, a lot of people don't share that belief, but, uh, but it's, it's good to talk to someone who understands that. Well, cool. Well, look, I've gone through what I wanted to go through. I think the main point of this was, as I said, I wanted to talk a little bit more about like what family offices are and how they're structured. Um, any closing thoughts on family offices in general? Uh, just, again, I think it's an industry that's going to fundamentally change how companies are financed in the next five to 10 years. So think how private equity and venture capital disrupted the private equity and venture cap disrupted the public markets in the mid eighties. That's how transformative it's going to be with family offices who are going to, they'll never replace private equity and venture capital but it'll disrupt it. And what we as an industry need to do, we need to come together, understand compensation, understand governance, understand, figure figure out ways to become more business-like. And I remember I was interviewing uh, Tony Pritzker and he's like, I never, I would never use the term family office because people, when they say the word family office, it's sort of like whimsical and it's not sophisticated. And sure. he would only use the term family capital. <clears throat> so I think you're going to see more and more people go to that direction but it's going to be a it's going to be slow but it's a fundamental change and if you look at it every major bank law firm and accounting firm service provider they're looking to get into the family offices because that's where the money is right so it, it, it's a massive market and it's changing in real time i think we're in the third inning um i think over the next three five seven years you're going to see massive changes in how people perceive and how people work with family offices. Yeah, the professionalization of them, the sophistication. No, it's interesting. Look, this has been fascinating. And as someone who uh, has 
sometimes very negative beliefs on uh, I've I've definitely had uh, some issues with the way uh, a lot of private equity shops run their operations. Uh, so it's nice to talk about how uh, there could be an alternative so that this is very valuable. Well, thanks again for your time. And for those of you who are listening, that was Ron Diamond, Diamond Wealth Strategies. And this has been Josh Carr at The Real Angle. Um, like and subscribe, as they like to say, and I'll see you again next week. Thanks again, Ron. Thank you. My pleasure.